everyone. Welcome to the World Bank EdTech Podcast. Today we're speaking about the Evoke Storytelling Initiative, an initiative that aims to create a network of international creative talent, storytellers, writers, artists, filmmakers, game designers, and digital education content specialists who will create the next generation of educational learning material. Our World Bank EdTech team member, Robert Hawkins, is speaking with Ruth Wiley, Assistant Director from the ASU Center for Science and the Imagination, John V. Conoria, Director of Innovation Development from Education Above All, and Colin McClay, Executive Director of the USC Annenberg School Innovation Lab, about the Evoke Storytelling Initiative and how the network pairs industry leaders with youth and teachers from education institutions globally to create educational narratives to inspire learning and action on global grand challenges. Welcome to the World Bank EdTech Podcast, a conversation on the use of technology and innovation in education globally. My name is Bob Hawkins, and I'm the Global Lead for Technology and Innovation at the World Bank. We're very pleased to have with us today Ruth Wiley, the Assistant Director from the Arizona State University Center for Science and the Imagination, Colin McClay, the Executive Director of the USC Annenberg School Innovation Lab, and John V. Canoria, the Director of Innovation Development from Education Above All. Uh, welcome to all. So I'm very excited to have this conversation with all of you today on the theme of digital content and how to create more creative, engaging digital content. One of the key lessons that we learned from the COVID crisis when schools closed and students went online was that you can't translate the face-to-face -face content to an online environment. And it's critically important to have engaging content to support students in their learning process online, which includes storytelling, game mechanics, social networks. And these are the very principles that we've been working with and experimenting with over a number of years through an action research project called Evoke that looks at ways to reach young people where they spend their time to think about global grand challenges develop the necessary 21st century skills, the creativity, the problem solving, the empathy, the communication and collaboration to then take on these global grand challenges, whether it's sustainable cities, literacy, or in the case that we engaged with the four countries, Honduras, Colombia, Afghanistan, as well as a school here in the US, on the theme of migration. So I'm very excited to be with you today to talk about the beginning of that process but then also to imagine where this process could go. And we've discussed with all of you your participation in creating a network of international creative talent, storytellers, writers, artists, filmmakers, game designers, digital education content specialists, who will create this next generation of educational learning material, and how this network of experts could pair industry leaders with youth and teachers from around the world to create these educational narratives that respond to the students in their local context and inspire them to learn, to take that extra step, as well as to begin to think about how to address these global grand challenges like migration in their local communities. And we started the first phase of this back at the end of last year. First of all, thank you uh, for engaging uh, in this discussion with us and this initiative. And I wanna ask you all to kind of share your experience, reflect on the lessons and, and imagine what could be the development of this network going forward in the future. So Ruth, let me start with you. Arizona State University Center for Science and Imagination has a well-earned reputation for placing innovation at the core of its work on future trends. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about CSI 
and particularly the, the interesting story of its beginning, the conversation between Michael Crow and, and Neil Stevenson, the science fiction writer, who through Snow Crash actually termed the word uh, metaverse, and how the center has evolved, particularly the reflections on the experience that we've had together on Evoke, our creative hackathon, to the emphasis on innovation, entrepreneurial mindset amongst youth, and kind of how you see this meeting the mission of CSI. Perfect. Thanks, Bob. Yeah, it was about a decade ago, a little more, when science fiction author Neil Stevenson had written an essay titled Innovation Starvation. And in it, he was sharing his ideas about that as a society, we're not doing big things anymore. And he was speaking about his essay, and he was on a panel. And on the same panel was Michael Crow, Arizona State University's president. And Dr. Crow suggested that what we really needed to bring that spark back was better stories. And he questioned that if Neil and his colleagues were to write starting more hopeful stories rather than this dystopias that we're all used to, he said maybe that would reignite the collective imagination that we need for a better future. And so this conversation led to several more, and it was really the foundation and the beginning of the Center for Science and Imagination, where we bring together wildly interdisciplinary groups like researchers and scientists and scholars, and we have them work together with artists and writers and other creatives to imagine not only more hopeful futures, but also pathways to develop them. So we're really excited to work with the Evoke Project because we think it's a great example of this type of interdisciplinary collaboration. It uses storytelling as a way to inspire, but it's also not just about telling great stories. It's about using stories to unite a community, particularly communities of youth, and preparing them with both the agency and the tools to build better futures. I want to introduce uh, Colin to the discussion. Colin is uh, USC's Annenberg School of Communication and Journalism, where he is, uh, again, the Director for Innovation. And USC, the school, has a strong reputation for its work on transmedia storytelling, Colin, in different cultures. I wonder if you can tell us a bit about your work with storytelling uh, and how this project could impact the countries and cultures in which it's deployed. The idea of this project uh, is stories can be both contextualized but global at the same time and build on each other. For instance, how might youth from various cultures share their stories and build on others to support one another's learning? I wonder if you can share a little bit about uh, your work in this area, Colin. The real expert is my colleague and podcast co-host, Henry Jenkins, who I think really popularized the phrase transmedia storytelling and has also worked with um, Ruth and her team. And you know, this is just the idea that stories are told and constructed and exist across different media platforms. The idea is not just that you repeat the same thing in a movie and a comic book and a book, but rather that pieces of the story can be assembled and distributed across these different media in ways that leverage their particular affordances. And so that adds up to something that might be much more rich, much more like a scavenger hunt to understand the story or to construct the story. And I think some of the most exciting aspects, as you suggested, that relates to this conversation is that it's not only about the storytelling. In other words, not that there's like a, a master storyteller who is dropping tidbits here and there and, and allowing users to consume the story, but that you can also create opportunities for interactivity and for the participants in the story the readers, listeners, watchers, whatever, to also contribute and build out the story, to really co-construct in ways that make the story far more tailored to, to their individual experience, which could be about their identity and who they are, which could include their imagined community, their geography, their age, all the different things that, that make up who we are. And so in this way, I think there's a real opportunity to, in some sense, create a bit of a world 
but then do the world building in collaboration with the people who are going to inhabit that world. So if you think about the sort of old model of one of us creates and everyone else consumes, the one-to-many model that we have gotten so bored with, this is a radically, this offers us a radically different opportunity in which there can be many creators in many different platforms that contribute according to their ability to engage with that particular platform and to their preferences and the affordances for the platform. So I think it's it's an opportunity to really build out what their imagination looks like that could range from posting stuff on social media, really physically constructing an object or clothing or things that go with the story in the sense that bring it into reality in a way that, you know, we often talk about world building as something that is so vivid and real that it feels like a memory. So this different assemblage of touch points on a story and the opportunity to engage with it really feels like it's a remarkable creative play space and thus opportunity for connecting with others and participating in the process for building your skills around imagination and creation, also your skills to sort of navigate these different elements of story and assemble and question. And in that way, just a far more robust and also flexible and generative process and platform that speaks to the diversity of experience around the world, but also creates opportunities to connect those different experiences. One of the the key issues that you raised was the ability to create your own stories. And I think what we find with a a lot of our our youth that we work with around the world is the sense of very low self-esteem that the future is out of their reach. It's not possible. So what we, I think, aspire to do as part of this network is to allow students to tell their own stories, to imagine an alternative futures, to think outside of their own context and perhaps the limitations of that context, to imagine alternative futures for themselves uh, and their community. Uh, so this is this is super exciting. Bob, if we can't imagine a better future, there's no way we can create one, right? So I think you you said it right there. Like that is so important to be able to really imagine and and not just in the in the grand sense of like oh i'm going to be really rich and whatever that you know vague imagination is but to really imagine it and then as ruth said you can construct pathways to how we're going to get there but if you can't imagine that future it's not going to happen one of the things i really like about evoke and we hear this in what colin was saying making more inclusive futures too so the one to many model you get a great view of one person's preferred future or thoughts about a future. But when we make this more inclusive, when we bring in the collaboration, we can take advantage that we are all natural storytellers and that we all have our own personal values and ideals for what that future might be. And by bringing that all together, it empowers people, it develops agency, and then we can actually not just create good stories, but create those those good futures as well. Another important part of the collective, the community, is this idea of of social capital and social networks and the ability of a network to support a student uh, or a youth or anyone really to take that extra step, to believe that what might not be possible in their own mind is actually possible. Can you maybe reflect a little bit on how you interpret collective imagination and the power of that collective imagination to inspire young people to do what they might think is not possible? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And again, I think that as humans, we are all storytellers. We all possess the the capability of great imaginations, but it can, not everyone necessarily has access to realize those imaginations. So part of what Vogue does and the work that we're trying to do at the center is not just about 
imagining those great futures, but about developing the agency and the self-efficacy. And then, as you mentioned too, the network of resources, whether that's financial resources or relationships or other connections to realize these futures into realities. So I'd like to bring you into the conversation now, John. The EAA, Education Above All, has been doing some incredible path-breaking work on educating refugees and migrants in some of the most challenging situations where youth likely don't have a sense of being empowered by the education they're, they're receiving. How might you think about education narratives? What's been your experience in terms of local storytelling to help them change the trajectory of, of their lives? What do you see the opportunities around growing this type of network? Thank you, Bob, for that question. So, you know, really in the last two years, since the COVID-19 pandemic caused school systems to close down, we developed what we're calling this Internet-Free Education Resource Bank. And the idea was really for learning continuity in some of these hardest-to-reach contexts where we really had to have the learners lead their own learning. And we had to create that sense of urgency and as well as agency within them. And so the main tenant was how do we personalize this learning and make it relevant and make sure it's inspired from their own surroundings. So in many of the places that we worked, which actually don't have any books or even a culture of storytelling, really, the innovation was quite simple. We had learners author their own books often inspired from local fairy tales, folk tales. They, they conjured up their own comic heroes. They found issues in their own community, which these comic heroes solved. They wrote their own newspapers that captured their own reality. And in doing so, the first learning was that storytelling is just such a powerful tool. It really helped these communities take themselves seriously and their own work seriously. And it was also interesting because it was so powerful for these learners themselves. Because by giving them a voice, we just really helped these children and youth exercise ownership on their own life story. It was really sometimes the first time anyone had asked them about their preferences, their stories, their life. And it not only helped them imagine and manifest alternate realities, but it gave them the confidence to make that happen. So we've seen in remote parts of the world, learners reimagine a narrative of a plastic-free village, or they themselves write what the COVID norms and social distancing of their village needs to be. They rethink what gender norms have to be in their own realities. And this is just by writing their own stories, they have a chance to sit back, reflect on them, and imagine a different possibility which they can make happen. And of course, there's a huge benefit, of course, for the perspective of the communities. There's also a huge benefit for the international community. So for people like us sitting so far away, we're hearing from previously absent voices and hearing what their real experiences and emotions are around stories that we otherwise just hear in the news. And I really love the fact that Evoke sort of brings together so many different people, illustrators, storytellers, game designers, educators. And we, in some ways, form almost a formidable team that really thinks deeply about these voices from the ground and how we can amplify them and really create that power and unleash it more broadly. Things you said were, were really powerful. One is the ability to tell your own story, and the other is to work towards a goal. And one of the big challenges that we have coming out of COVID is not just recovering learning losses, because there were enormous learning losses as a result of school closures, but we really need to accelerate learning. 
we kind of measure learning poverty by the number of 10-year-olds who can read a, a simple paragraph. And in many countries in the, around the world, it's much below 50% and, and has gotten worse during this pandemic. So thinking about ways in which being able to both tell your story and think about a learning path that kind of accelerates you. I wonder if, John, you can kind of reflect on how this process might play a role in accelerating learning in the future. Yeah, Bob and I think the real key for that for us was to not constrain learning to schooling. The minute you give learners agency and you free that learning to happen anytime, anywhere, with anyone, it becomes something that happens all the time, everywhere, and with everyone. So just ensuring that that power of learning is distributed. And what I mean by that very practically is making sure that the communities feel empowered to help their children learn, even if they are partially illiterate or semi-literate. It doesn't matter. They still have a lot of very powerful life lessons that can be transferred to their children because that's how they survive. It's really important for children to learn in everything that they do and not think of learning as something that is constrained to an activity that is only done with a teacher on a school. And in many ways, by giving them a voice and recognizing that they have some power over their own narrative and story, we're giving them the ability to think about themselves and take charge of their own learning. And I think this is really important because very often this is, you know, what we talk about with a gap between an affluent home or a more deprived context is that additional enriching environment that the affluent child would receive at home from parents or from books or from other such activities. And how do we recreate that in the deprived context? And this is one way to do it by giving them ownership and helping them run with it. And if all it takes is to give them a little bit of a voice and empower them to have a bit of self-belief, as we were discussing earlier, then that is not so hard to do. What we're seeing is that as a result of the investments made in ed tech around the world, countries are now looking, what is the right hybrid system? How do we build resilience into the system so that we're ready for, for future shocks? And we had a discussion uh, last week with the minister from Gujarat, and he was commenting that before we had schools without learning, and his goal is now to have learning without schools. So thinking about how learning can happen anywhere, anytime through technology. And I do think being able to have content that's engaging, that's relative, that inspires young people to kind of think about alternative futures is really important. I want to shift the discussion a little bit to what we did last year and, and how this consortium might evolve. And I wonder if, uh, Ruth, you can kick us off to share a little bit about the process that was developed with four countries, Honduras, Colombia, Afghanistan refugees, and actually a school here in Washington, D.C. that is focused on migrants and adult learning. How we developed this process for these four countries, how the virtual element of a hackathon was created, and the final outcome of where we ended up at the end of December and the presentation at WISE. Uh, Ruth? Hey, thanks. Like many folks, we had to rethink our methodology. So we've been doing collaborative imagination work at the center for about a decade now. And often that involves bringing people together physically to do some really intense creative and imagination work. But of course, with the, the global pandemic, bringing people all to Arizona wasn't an option. So we had to rethink how to do this project in a safe way, given the COVID concerns. We also learned a lot from the creative hackathon that we did around Evoke in 2014, 
which resulted in really terrific stories and art. And we were motivated to see how we could take the lessons learned from that experience and uh, the online convenings that we've done throughout COVID and see what we could do to create a asynchronous experience and work with these four countries to create great stories and, and great art. So like with many things, these pivots introduced both challenges and opportunities. And one of the great things that came out of moving to an online space was that we could involve many more people, particularly youth who might not have been able to travel even if it was safe to do so. So we started with an online convening. I worked closely with Madeline Ashby, who's an amazing science fiction author and futurist. And we developed the workshop curriculum. And then we also created a curriculum for the teams to follow after the workshop to create their own story elements. So at the workshop, we got to know the teams a bit better. We learned about migration from a global perspective. We were able to talk with the teams and find out what their goals for the project were. And then we moved to working with the teams asynchronously over about a four week period where they developed characters and went through processes of coming up with settings and plot points. And then Madeline took these pieces to develop short story synopses that we were able to share at the Y Summit. And in parallel, we worked with the incredibly talented Anthony Dietadue, who is a comic book artist and a character designer, who also took the story elements to create character sketches and representative images for the stories. And one thing that I really wanna highlight is the close collaboration between the teams that were in country and the incredibly talented creatives that we worked with on this project. For example, Anthony would create an initial sketch and then share it with the teams who would give feedback and it was really a tight iterative process that would continue in order to create the, the pieces that we were able to share. And we're also really excited to keep this process going. So our plan is to continue to work with the four countries to fully realize their stories. As we talked about earlier, the storytelling process is really powerful and it can encourage teams to reflect both on their own values and today and also the future goals that they want. And so again, we're really excited to see how these story ideas can be used as seeds for much greater projects and see this innovation grow. In such a short amount of time, four to five weeks, these countries were able to come up with compelling settings, compelling characters, uh, a, a draft outline of a plot, as well as the manifestation of those characters as illustrated by Anthony that really brought life to the project. Janvi is, is one of the four country participants, which actually created two stories. I wonder if you can share a bit about your reflections on the process, how it relates to the experience of, of Afghan migrants and where you see this maybe evolving for EAA. Uh, Janvi? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, EAA developed an emergency education package for Afghan refugees. And so this led us to actually work with many of them directly. And what was incredible to witness is the tenacity that these refugees have, that even though they've been through so much adversity, we just saw them building new relations, finding cause to play and smile and laugh. So we were just so excited to participate in the Evoke project and to bring real representation to the causes and the effects of forced migration, but also to really share these human stories behind those news stories and to really build resilience and 21st century skills amongst these learners as they share their stories, but also, of course, to help build that more broadly as globally. So what we did is uh, we brought together very different people involved in this crisis to put together the story. And so in the brainstorming process, we had refugee girls who were 
in settlements in Qatar. We had those who had previously migrated due to prior Afghan crisis. We had those who worked with these children and the families who were affected, aid workers. So it was a really different and disparate group. And it was a really intense piece of work to bring them all together. And we had really multiple voices in the room to contend with. What was really incredible, though, is how it went well beyond that aspect of representation. And I feel like it revealed a hidden side of uh, human character. Because even when the characters and the stories we came up with were really set in the depths of despair, they ended up with this incredible hope. Each of the characters just emerged so strong and victorious through all these trials and tribulations of their migration process, all the hardships that were thrown at them. Separation from family resulted in creation of another family. So it is really lovely to see how that process worked and how so many different voices actually came together to form these two stories. And Perhaps it created the same sense of optimism for those participating. And that's what our real hope was, that all of these people who were in different ways affected by the Afghan crisis could take away a little bit of hope and a little bit of joy and a little bit of optimism from having done this exercise. So my real hope is that we're able to bring more such stories from the ground to life with real human voices of those involved and make sure that when they go out into the world, they're not very sanitized news stories, but they are actually full of life and joy because those can be found even in these contexts. What Dante's saying is really important about the the hopefulness that is coming from these characters. So all Good stories will have conflict and, and challenges, but seeing the hope and the optimism, as well as the agency and the characters, and seeing that shine through is also a strong goal of this project. And to pick up on what you said earlier, Bob, about really the short time span to develop these story ideas and characters, I think one of the things that makes that possible is that we're not just creating completely imaginary worlds, but that we're creating these stories based on people's lived experiences or the experience of their neighbors and other community members. And so, again, I think that really speaks to the powerful process here and about bringing real people's stories and their lived experiences and giving them voice and having it manifest. And I think that speaks to, to why this can all work and come together in such a short amount of time. I, I think it's really important when we're, we're talking about these um, migrants to also remember that almost all of them display some extraordinary strength because they have gotten to where they are and they've left homes, which is very hard to do even in the best or the worst of situations. And actually tapping into that strength when they're telling their own stories and making themselves vulnerable at the same time by sharing these details is not the easiest of processes. But hopefully it ends up with them being a little bit more empowered, as well as people who read their stories should feel really, really excited to know that these people aren't, you know, people who you look at who you assume are weak or in desperate need of help, but they're actually people who can help themselves. They're fairly empowered and that's how they've gotten to where they are. All they need is a bit of understanding. So that was another really important thing that I think a lot of the people participating in this process just felt through the process that, you know, this is possible. We've come a long way. 
So I know that the road ahead is long and treacherous, but we can get there. I think it gets back to kind of where we started the conversation around the importance of giving people voice and allowing that voice to inspire others. John V and Ruth, what you both said is just so powerful from kind of Ruth's framework to like Jean V really locating us in a particular population, which in my experience, refugee populations, that can be the single most disempowered group I've ever come across. It it, it can be absolutely debilitating. And, th- and the way that John V is describing it is just like, got my, all my, my hairs are standing on end. It's what's so exciting about this is just the, you can see the potential, right? Especially when we're dealing with massive global challenges or local challenges that may seem overwhelming and impossible, whether it's you know, being a refugee or uh, the rest of us thinking about climate change or, or you know, and anywhere in between, that the, the power of rolling up your sleeves and engaging with that challenge in a way that could be positive and joyful and playful and real is, is you, you can't imagine how important that is as opposed to feeling like these things are being done to you you have no agency and you have no hope and so the fact that it starts with a creative process allows that the intervention and the way that we see ourselves and the way that others are allowed to see us to just to be transformative so so i just i just feel like there's so much potential here now what i in terms of like how this could grow imagine just what you heard you know scaling up a little bit and and, and i guess the, the parts that i hear are building a process instead of practices kind of a, a a scaffolding if you will that allows diverse contributors to engage with the material and to not just give them a blank sheet of paper and say okay figure it all out but some some structural things, some places to get a little friction and to, to get the ball rolling and figure out what they do want to create. And so you have kind of the the expert teams, whether of writers or, or illustrators, who can engage with these creators in ways that don't leave them alone, but you know, but help them to build out their stories and their visions in a way that to me is, is a wonderful partnership that we see too little of. So I guess if I were to play that out at scale. I would imagine a certain amount of of central work to create kind of ways to plug in and resources for folks to build with and, and to tell those stories and to allow stories. You know, we've talked about four countries plus a, a school in D.C. today, but imagine as those those tales start to have the capacity to be interwoven and interconnected, right? Kind of like we're seeing in, you know, in, in popular culture, you have the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? You have all these different realities which can touch each other and they can be kind of involved in distant ways or in really intimately overlapping ways. And so I guess what I would love to see is in some sense, this world built out in a way that the architecture may come from sort of centers and nodes, but that it allows people in all these different contexts to sort of plug in and build out myriad realities that are actually in dialogue with each other, such that we're getting a better sense of these very real, poignant, important local stories and and visions for the future, as well as telling our own stories and seeing what it is to create a collective story, right? Because we are on this planet together. We are in so much of what we experience together. And one of the things that we have seen that has been so painful in the last years 
is the ways that we are separating uh, from one another rather than being in common cause and otherizing. And, and so the idea that visions for future society don't have to be where we are now, but rather where we want to go and the kinds of worlds that we want to build, you can just imagine a much more inclusive, generative, creative, positive world built from people, the, you know, the youth in particular, who are going to inhabit that world. So to me, that sort of connected and decentralized but connected approach just seems really exciting. Three things you said really resonate. One is a way to kind of bridge this gap between these insurmountable global tech challenges and specific actions that young people can take in their community. The second is this idea of a social network of, of storytellers that are able to engage with young people to be able to tell their own story. And the third is that this is a, a collaborative effort, that the elements of the stories can be deepened or expanded by the countries. The storytellers in Honduras might take some of the elements from Colombia and build out their story uh, using uh, some of the plot from Colombia, for instance, or from Afghanistan. So this and idea yeah. of kind of a collective story is super exciting for me. Totally. And you could see over time, right? Right now we're sort of organized along the lines of countries, but that's just one way that we might organize, right? You could see all sorts of other imagined communities telling stories in ways that would traverse and ignore our political boundaries for other kinds of ways that we see ourselves or, or want to be seen. So I think there's endless potential for people to participate in that creative re-envisioning. One of the things that I really like about this project is the combination of looking at these global grand challenges, but also looking at them from a very specific local place. And I, I hear that echoed in what Colin was saying and Bob with what you followed up, but this idea that the story of human migration is very much a personal one for people that are, are migrating either forced migration or by choice, but it's also common globally. And so trying to see those connections and again, provide people with resources and, and skills to be more empathetic as well about how we're approaching these issues. And I see that again, the power of storytelling to take one person's story, have it spread to many others, and then to change global perspectives on a big issue. So I'm, I'm excited to see that and I see it as a challenge and one that I, I think we can meet. I'm, I'm really curious about how to get more future thinking and future curriculum to our youngest learners. So as John B was talking earlier, it's not just about formal education, it's about informal learning spaces, but why is it that schools all around, at least in the US have courses on history, but so few, if any, have courses on the future. So my call to action is really an invitation to invite people to get in touch with me if they know about great curriculum for our youngest learners in terms of futures thinking or an invitation if they want to get involved in the work to, to reach out. That's an awesome point. I think if you do an informal study of, of many of our, our tech entrepreneurs and, and visionaries, they were inspired by science fiction writers imagining what the future could be. You know, it's so interesting to hear both Ruth and Colin and there's so much that I just echo from what they've said. These 21st century challenges that we're talking about are not discrete challenges. They're not just affecting one part of the population. It affects everyone in their own specific way. So even the challenge of migration is not only felt by migrants, but also by host communities, also by those who they left behind. And in many ways, everyone is affected 
somehow or the other. But somehow our world is just getting more and more polarized, even though we have shared experiences and even though everyone is affected. And maybe just bringing these unheard voices and humanizing those unheard voices has an incredible power to it because it helps people understand a different perspective, not from a place of someone who is oppressed or an oppressor, but it more from a space of someone who went through a hard time, but is, you know, grappling with similar challenges in their own slightly unique context. So I really hope that we are able to do three things with this, right? First is, as we've talked about, build agency and ownership, whether it's with those who we give a voice to, or it's with those who are reading the story and relating to it. But the youth and both sides of this, I hope we give them agency and ownership. I hope we also create, because that's the beauty and power of storytelling, a sense of not just hope, but optimism and joy for an alternate future. So you can imagine a reality which is different from where we are. And thirdly, I just hope that that becomes a shared vision. So when it's taken to action, it isn't taken individually by one group or another, but it's actually something that's taken with a more holistic perspective. That's sort of what my hope with this piece is. People often think of this as a very daunting task and, you know, especially innovation in education because it's so risky. How can we be playing with our children's futures? How can we be testing something new? But I would just like to invite people to perhaps just listen carefully to the narratives on their ground and the challenges and hopes. And while employing some common sense, maybe give people on the ground the ability to rewrite their own stories because those would be a lot more sustainable and powerful intervening on their behalf. And if, you know, there are any people interested in this, please come and talk to me. I'd be really excited to think about how we can do this together. One of your hopes kind of brings us back to the beginning of the discussion of the the impetus for CSI between Michael Crow and Neil Stevenson of imploring us to write more optimistic futures that will inspire people, young people, to create the next Moonshot projects. Colin, let me, let me go to you for a, a final word on your call to action. Eek! My call to action is nowhere near as sophisticated or thoughtful as the thoughts that Ruth and John V have just shared. Mine is simply this, make something. It doesn't matter what it is. I think we often position ourselves as as consumers, as the not experts, as not good enough artist or singer or you name the thing. And we forget that you can just make things and it doesn't matter what you have available. Everybody has something and whether it's, you know, a a rock sculpture or something sophisticated, there's something in the act of creating where you learn about the practice, you reflect on things, you feel the materials, whatever it is that, that speaks to you. And I think also can be inspiring to inspire the recognition that we are each capable of making things that matter, that tell our own stories or reflect realities or reflect our imagination. And there's just huge power in that realization that you can make a thing. And I think that that also translates into to making the futures that we want. Part of innovation, that you need to make something, you need to recognize that it will be imperfect, that you will fail, and you need to try again. But the most important message, which is actually the, the final message of our, I'll get a plug in for our uh, EdTech uh, strategy paper, is just to start. 
you need to start. I want to thank all three of you for joining this discussion. It was a fascinating uh, discussion, and I'm excited to share it with our listeners. So thanks again for the generosity of your, your time, experience, and knowledge.